if you've been watching the news at all, you've, you've seen that the Pope has been visiting America, uh, and it's been very interesting how the news has been captivated by this, and questions about you know, what issues he's going to address, uh, what topics he's going to talk about, who's he's going to be meeting with, and, and how is he going to deal with some of the scandals that have been going throughout the Catholic Church. And, you know, if you're aware, it, it's not a surprise that the, church, the Catholic Church has been under a, a lot of scandal lately. Um, it's not just the Catholic Church, so if you have a Catholic background or a Catholic, it's not that we're just against the Catholic Church, but uh, Protestants have had their fair share, evangelicals, if you're old enough to remember the, the 80s and 90s, the whole televangelist scandals that were out there, and, and most recently, Recently, the, the collapse of one of the, mo- the biggest church planning movements in evangelicalism with Mars Hill closing down and, and Mark Driscoll resigning, uh, unfortunately, you don't have to look far to be a little suspicious of God's work in the world. Um, and if you're not a Christian, if you're a bit of a skeptic, maybe a friend brought you today, you just need to hear me as a pastor say that, that, that it bothers me, it bothers us at least as much as it bothers you because this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way God's church is supposed to conduct herself, uh, but unfortunately, this isn't anything new. If you know anything about church history, uh, especially particularly the Middle Ages of church history, it is full of of synods within the Catholic church, of synods or meetings, councils of censures and punishments against the priests of the Catholic church. It got so bad that the Catholic church actually had to create church law that would prohibit priests from entering into houses of prostitution, gambling, and, and drinking. Uh, It got so out of control, they actually exercised corporal punishment against their own priests. Uh, Can you stop and think for for a second? Can you imagine our members meeting in January? All right, we just have to make bylaws here that that Adam can no longer go to Dave and Buster's because he's always getting into these drunken fights and it's embarrassing for us, right? But that's what was going on within the church. And it wasn't just the rank and file priests, mind you. The popes themselves were some of the worst culprits. So Pope Benedict IX, let me see if I get these things correct here, was such a wretch that this was a 9th, 10th, probably between the 9th to 12th centuries, was such a wretch, I think he's the only pope that the Catholic Church forced out of the papal office. He was guilty of murder, adultery, he robbed pilgrims, mind you, on the graves of other martyrs. So the Catholic Church forced him out and then instituted Sylvester III. Well, Benedict was not happy with this, so he fought his way back, literally got himself an army and fought back and got the papal throne back. Many of the priests were just shocked that that this was their pope, so they went to the coffers of the Catholic Church and paid him 2,000 pounds, I don't mean British money, but literally 2,000 pounds of silver to pay him off to go away. And so as he agreed, because now he was filthy rich beyond dreams, the Catholic Church then brought in another pope called Gregory VI. Well, Benedict changed his mind. So he came back for the throne. Sylvester saw Benedict change his mind. So Sylvester said, well, I should still be pope. Then they had three popes fighting for the throne. It really took Henry III, the king, to settle the whole matter. And the way he did it was he got his good friend and made him pope, and that's Pope Leo IX. And then immediately what Pope Leo IX did was take Henry down to Rome and and crown him Holy Roman Emperor. So we can see that the church has its share of of, uh, dubious dealings, but that's not the worst of it. The worst of it was something called the the Cadaver Synod. The Cadaver Synod in which Pope Stephen VI 
was so angry at his predecessor, Pope Formosus, that he had his body exhumed, put into his papal garbs, put on trial, and as he was yelling accusations at this nine-month-old decomposing pope, found him guilty of the charges, had all his clerical clothes taken from him, the three fingers that they blessed people with were hacked off, and he had the body thrown into the river. So later, Pope the Ni- John the Ninth said, guys, this is ridiculous. Can we at least say from now on, no one can ever put a dead person on trial again? <laughs> Here's my point. Here's my point. That unfortunately, oftentimes people and institutions that are supposed to represent the Lord not only fail to do that, but they become the very things that they, the institution and people exist to oppose in the first place. And like I said, this isn't something that's just now with what's going on in the Catholic Church or with an evangelicalism. This has been going on throughout the history of the church, but it even goes on further than that, as we'll see today. The reason being is whenever you have religion and, and the things associated with religion without a corresponding regenerate heart, you are always going to get what I call prophets for profit, if you know what I'm saying. Whenever you have religious establishment without the corresponding regeneration of the heart, whenever you have men and women who will say, I want to honor myself more than honoring the Lord, you're going to have these situations. And we see it from, from, from God's own word from 1 Samuel chapter 2 that he says, I will honor those who, I will, who honor me, but those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. The ESV says it's a nice way of saying, I will despise. So in our passage this morning, we are going to see that truth lived out in the biblical characters, and as God responds to them both in judgment and in grace. So if you have a Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to finish our study of this passage. Let me ask God to bless the teaching of His Word. Father, we thank You that we could gather and think about what it means to honor You. We live in a world that we're always trying to honor ourselves. And Father, at the end of the day, we all know it, that there's only one who's truly, truly worthy of the designation being honorable, and that's you. Would you open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear from your word what it means to honor you, that our lives might reflect that and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come on the heels of Hannah's great prayer in the beginning of chapter 2, Hannah prays, and and she mentions and alludes to the arrogant in verse 3 of her prayer in chapter 2, the mighty in verse 4, the wicked, verse 9, those who oppose the Lord in verse 10. We are introduced to all of those right here in our passage this morning from verses 11 to 36. But They're not the Canaanites, right? They're not the Philistines. They're not any of God's, uh, the historic enemies of God's people. They're God's own priests, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Now, if the religious festivals, as we learned last week, was almost a debauchery form of Mardi Gras, it's no wonder why, because it was the priests themselves that were leading the people in that direction. They were leading the people into this wickedness by mocking God through their own contempt that they had of the offerings, we'll see in verse 13, and the abuse of God's people in verses 16 and 22. When I was uh, first starting off in ministry, I learned a real important principle that it applies in, in not just in the church, but all kinds of leadership. But the phrase went, so go the priests, so go the people. 
So go the priests, so go the people. So before we go any further, let me read our passage and we'll jump into the text. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 11 for the rest of the chapter. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, verse 15, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother, Hannah, used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So so then, then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, verse 22, was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and with also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifice and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be one an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all of his descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, 
shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. So Hannah's prayer is this wonderful capstone that ends really chapter 1 through this middle section of chapter 2 and at the same time serves as this wonderful cornerstone uh, equally powerful for the rest of the chapter. And we're going to see in the rest of this chapter exactly how God honors him who honors him and how he disdains those who despise him. By the way, this is the key concept of this chapter. If you tend to dial out during a sermon and miss a few details, don't miss this one. This is the driving point of what the Lord is saying. The key concept of our text is that God honors those who honor him. And God will oppose those who disdain him or treat him lightly. So, those who honor God, we see in our passage, are represented by the house of Elkanah. We see this in the life of Samuel. We hear this in the words of this mysterious man of God towards the end of the chapter. Those who dishonor God, we see in the house of Eli, in the lives of Hophni and Phinehas, and in the words of Eli's own descendants. Now, we're going to look at this passage a little bit out of order because I want to see more continuity Because what we see in verses 18 through 21, we see the way God honors those who have honored Him. It's the last time we see in our passage, or all the book of uh, 1 Samuel, Elkanah and Hannah. This is the last time we see them. When the book started, we saw it with strife and despair and barrenness. When it ends, their portion ends, it's just with blessing and abundance. God says, I'm going to honor you and blesses them. So you see this. It's wonderful to see Hannah coming back up to the yearly sacrifice this time not being mocked, not filled with bitterness because of her barrenness, but joy as she, she makes these little cute little robes that she brings to her son who's now a ministering priest in the tabernacle, and then they depart. But let's look at those who the majority of this passage emphasizes those who would not honor the Lord. Look at verses 13 and 17. This is where Eli, or, uh, Hophni and Phinehas are really abusing the people by, by taking from the offering. Now, number one, what you need to know if you're a note taker, uh, the way they are getting their food from the offering, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.13, that the priests were to live off the offerings of the people of Israel. By the way, that's the, that's the same kind of principle that we use, that the pastoral staff survives off the offering of God's people. So in those time periods, the way the priests would survive is that the people would give portions of the sacrifice so that the priests had food to eat. It was clearly laid out in Leviticus chapter 6, Leviticus 7, Deuteronomy 18. The portions and how they were given was clearly laid out. What Eloth, uh, Hophni and Phinehas are doing here are completely out of step with what the Old Testament said was good for the priests. Notice that verse 15 right there, moreover, give us the fat. They were taking the choicest parts of the meats, not after it's boiled, when it's raw, for themselves rather than giving that to the Lord. In other words, they were putting themselves before God got His own due. Now, Leviticus chapter 3, you don't need to turn to that, it's going to be on the screens. Leviticus 3.3 says this, And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat is on the entrails. And then this next verse really makes it clear. Same chapter, verse 16. 
and the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. So I'm going to tie that up in a little bit, but what you need to see is that these priests were taking more than their fair share. They were honoring themselves before the Lord. They were sending their friends, these servants down, basically to the offering site with basically a big barbecue fork and just taking more for them. Now, scholars, and I'll be up front, I'm not exactly sure why God loves the fat, although if you are a bacon lover, that is the most favorable part of the bacon is the sizzle and smell and the the aroma of the fat. But for these men to take the fat for themselves was an abomination because that was to be given to the Lord. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 22 to 26 talks about what to do to people who take the fat and not give it to the Lord. Now, it could be in ancient Near uh, Near East culture, they believed that the source of an animal's strength was in the fat. They knew that the power was in the muscles, but they believed where the source of that power came from was the fat. And the thinking goes is that God did not want His people to be relying on any source of strength other than the strength that He would give them. So He would say to them, give me the fat, give me all that strength to me because I'm your strength. That's the the best we can speculate on why the fat was offered to God. The great thing is though, the people got really what we know now, the best portions of it because they got the protein. But God wanted them to realize, not put your strength and trust in the fat and the foods that they had, but in Him being their strength. But now, so for us, if we can't see that these food violations are that big a deal, certainly as we read the text, there's this physical intimidation that the priests were giving to the people offering. It says, I will take it by force. Notice that. And in these lives of these people, there's also in verse 22, this statement that the sons of Eli were laying with the women, and we're not sure whether or not that was a forced action or not. But they were offending the the Word of God. They were offending God's character and abusing God's people. They were horrid examples of what the priests ought to be. So in 1 Samuel 2.16, the average person coming to give sacrifice was put in this awkward position of having to rebuke and, and instruct the priest on what was appropriate. Look at verse 16. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish. In other words, the, the, the priest's servants would show up and say, give us more, and the people would say, well, please let the Lord have His due, and then you can take whatever else you want from me. Right? That's what he's saying. No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. How different this interaction is from what the Lord and the words that should come from the Lord's priests. Malachi 2 makes it really clear. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. Why? Because he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. That wasn't what was coming out of these priests with Hophni and Phinehas. The people were actually having to instruct them because they were so wicked and horrid. Hophni and Phinehas were dishonoring God by violating not only his offerings, but the very roles that they had. They were fleecing the flock taking more from God's people than was their just desserts. And they were honoring themselves before the Lord. Get verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and some commentators say that that's put there deliberately because there's this interaction between Eli and his sons. He's, he, it almost seems like Eli's saying, I've been hearing what's going on, it's time to stop. But the authors are actually indicating that Eli hadn't done this until he was very old Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and he hadn't done anything about it before. 
and how they lay, Hophni and Phinehas, lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now again, it could have been that, that Israel had fallen into cult prostitution like the people around them. It could have been that they were abusing these women. We don't know. Either way, it's not a good picture. No, my sons, Eli says, it is no good report that I hear the people of God spreading abroad. So, so Eli is coming against his sons finally. Now, inevitably, inevitably, if a man or woman will not honor the Lord, honor God, they have no reason to honor their fellow man, right? Conversely, if a man or woman honors the Lord, it's going to be natural that they're going to honor their fellow man. You know, wherever you might be on the spectrum of belief, if you believe in the, the fundamental human rights, right? Those are big things to us, and rightly so. If you believe in human rights, it, it does follow from that that if you believe in inalienable human rights, that you must believe in the existence of God. And the reason being is that if rights are rights, and by definition they are ours, and there is no absolute being to enforce those rights, what, what are those rights grounded in, right? If they're not grounded in some absolute authority that can execute a punishment or retribution or a reward when we follow through with those rights, those rights are just grounded in preference, right? So, so, and we don't talk about human rights as preferential things. We talk about human rights as if they are ironclad, fundamental. That's why they're called rights. But if you believe in human rights, by necessity, you have to believe in a being with the authority to either punish or reward those who fulfill those rights. This, by the way, is one of the reasons our founding fathers, this is what our founding fathers believed. Listen to Thomas Jefferson. This might sound familiar to you. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, when one forgets God, it won't be long before one forgets man, right? And by the way, notice that's why Jesus connected those two together in Matthew chapter 22 when the Pharisees asked him, what's the most important thing out there? Jesus responded without even having to think about it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your fellow man as well. The concept of rights that is so fundamental to our culture is deeply ingrained in the concept of an authoritative being that can execute punishment or give reward in the fulfillment of those rights. You can't have really one without the other. To love God means that you love your fellow man. Hophni and Phinehas forgot that if they, if they ever knew it. Look at verse 24 and verse 25. So Eli's words again, No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins, listen to this verse, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? In other words, if we commit an offense to someone else, there's this, there's this moral obligation we feel or you just suppress it, and then we create all these neuroses that are in our culture. When we offend, there's this moral obligation that we feel that compels us 
to, to make things right. Now, if you're a Christian, you might call that, you know, conviction of the Holy Spirit. If, if you're not a Christian, you might say that's a guilty conscience. The point is, there's this, this moral framework that God builds into the universe that when we have committed an offense, we feel fundamentally that this is not right and I've got to make this correct. That compels us to reconcile. But when someone offends God... There's no moral structure above God that's compelling Him to come to the table and make right with us, right? So when we offend one another, there's this moral framework that God has in the universe that we feel, whether you're a believer or not, that, hey, this is not right. We don't need to make it right. But if there's an offense between God and you, there's no moral framework above God that compels Him to come to the table. In other words, God is not obligated to reconcile with us as we feel obligated to reconcile with one another. So what's going to bring God to the table if it's not some kind of obligation? Right? There's nothing that can compel him. I show up to the table. There's nothing I can say that says, now you are compelled, obligated to come here. That obligation doesn't exist as it does between other human beings. If it's not moral obligation, what brings God to the table? because we need God to come to the table, because if there's an offense against Him, we've got to resolve that. And the Bible tells us it is God's love. He's not obligated to come. God comes to the table to reconcile with us out of His incredible love. We don't deserve anything from God, but we get everything from God in Christ because of His love. So he comes to the table, not because he's obligated to do so, but because he loves and he's compelled to come and be reconciled with his creation. So Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy 2 and says, Jesus is the mediator. Going back to this passage, Jesus is that mediator that will intercede between God and man. No one else can intercede. No mediator can come between God and man except God himself. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, one that's not based on obligations. You do these things, I do these things. A covenant based on love. Do you realize that the covenant God makes with us in the New Testament, it's not like the Old Testament where God says, you do all these things and then we can meet. He says, no, even if you don't do those things, I'm meeting with you. Oh, I wish in a sense, Eli, whether he knew it or not, he was pointing forward to a really important question that was only answered in the gospel. And then verses 26 through 30, we, we see this young man, Samuel, and then there's this mysterious man of God that shows up. We don't know who he is. And occasionally in the Old Testament, you see these guys show up. They're nameless. We don't know anything more about them. I love that about those guys, especially in an age of everyone wants a YouTube channel and everyone wants to be known. There's all these mysterious, unknown men of God that he puts in and does an amazing thing. And he says some scathing words to, to Eli about what's going to happen to him. Verse 29, why then, the man of God says to Eli, do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command, and listen to this, and honor your sons above me. Right, on the, right before verse 30, I promise that I will honor those who honor me and I will despise those who disdain me. So this man of God is reminding Eli of the position that he has and the privileges he's been given. 
And it, but rather than give God his due, the passage tells us that Eli preferred his sons to the Lord. So in some sense, the, Hophni and Phinehas, in one sense, they're just doing what their dad taught them. Well, if, if dad's going to honor us above God, well, then I guess we can honor ourselves above God too. So Eli failed as a father. Maybe Eli thought that simply wearing the priestly garments would be enough for, their son, for his sons to, to honor the Lord. Maybe Eli hoped that simply being in the temple all their lives would bring home to them the privilege that they had. Maybe Eli believed that somehow just performing the priestly duties would change their hearts, but it didn't. It didn't get below, and now his family was going to reap the, the tragedy of spiritual passive leadership. Because Eli, it says right here, honored his sons above the Lord. So in chapter 1, we learn that God doesn't just honor uh, prestige and power and position. We're also learning here that God doesn't honor lineage or religious involvement either. God wants honor to come to him because it's an overflow of a heart that wants to put him in his due place. You know, the Hebrew word for honor is the word chaved or chavod, and it's also the same word that's translated in English as worship and holiness, and it means heavy. If you were old enough to be around in the 60s and 70s, you know exactly the meaning of this, right? Man, dude, that's heavy. That's what we're doing. We're using the word in the same way. What are you saying that? It's got substance. There's something to this. And God is saying, treat me that way, that I've got substance. There's something to me, a weightiness about me. But you, you didn't, Eli. I was just like any other number of good things in your life, and I was one of other these things, and, and you chose your sons, and you didn't treat me as something with substance. You see, honoring God can look so different in so many different ways, but it always comes from a heart that says, God, I want to honor you. And it can look so radically different on the surface. That's why we need to be, as a congregation, so careful of what we look on the outside, right? Because imagine with me a man who's, you know, a power broker, or he works in the world of finance, or whatever it might be, and always wearing a suit, and he's a powerful man. But when he comes to service on a Sunday, he wants to express, God, I don't trust in my power, I don't trust in my wealth, I don't trust in all those things. I want to be humble before you, so I'm going to show up with shorts and t-shirt and my Bible, and I just want to be a man, right? But now imagine somebody who works for, you know, the DOT, and he's, he's out there working on the freeways. He's got grime under his fingernails, and he's sweating, and he smells all week long because he's making a good living. He comes to church. He buys what he calls his Sunday go meet and suit. And when he comes in, he says, God, I want to show you the reverence that you're due. I want to show you that you matter in my life. I clean myself up. I'm groomed. So both men come in looking 180 degrees different, but they got the exact same heart. So it's so important that we don't look just on the surface, but look at the heart of what's going on. Because honoring God can look 10,000 different ways, but it all comes from the same heart. God has substance, and I want to honor Him. So verses 30 to 36 is just this, this is tragic. Verse 33b about all of Eli's men in his household will be killed by the sword. Saul himself does that in 1 Samuel 22, wipes out all of Eli's descendants. Doesn't really know it's Eli's descendants, but wipes them out. 
Abathar the priest who gets finally exiled was one of Eli's descendants, 1 Kings chapter 2. So it all comes to pass. And, you know, as we leave this chapter 2, we might be given to despair because it's such a dark situation. But see, remember this, loud and clear, God is saying it. God will honor those who honor Him. Eli's household, just like Hannah, her life serves as a backdrop to this big idea. Now, we might be tempted to lose hope because the priesthood obviously is corrupt. The religious institute's going to collapse under God's just judgment. It doesn't look like there's any hope at all here. Yet, woven through this entire passage has been the solitary thread, so subtle that we pro- you probably wouldn't have caught it on a casual reading. But it's so significant to show that God in the background was working a salvation, and it all surrounded Samuel, the, the boy. I don't know if you noticed that. Let, let's highlight that. Uh, and and it, it shows to highlight a young life that will honor God and compared to these lives that don't honor God. Now, I have it on the screen. I want to point it out to you. Notice this pattern. It happens every time. In verse 11, we just hear quietly the Samuel, this boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord, and immediately in verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked. And then in, in, in verse 17, it talks about how great the sins of Eli's sons were, and then immediately in verse 18, there's Samuel again, just serving the Lord. And then young Samuel in verse 21 grew in the presence of the Lord, and immediately in verse 22, how Eli's sons were sleeping with women and abusing God's people. It continues uh, in verse 25, how God says, I'm bringing judgment on these hypocritical priests. I'm going to wipe them out. And immediately in verse 26, it says, in contrast, but Samuel grew in favor with the Lord. And then finally, in verse 36, in the the kind of judgment given to Eli's household, the man of God says, your sons are going to beg to be priests so they can be fed. And then immediately in chapter 3, verse 1, it says Samuel was serving God. It is no coincidence that every single verse are, are put together to compare and contrast a life that wants to honor God compared to these lives that will not honor God. You see, God's salvation is in the text. All along, as we're reading about these things, just like our lives, what makes the headlines is the difficulty and the evil and the trials. But all along, God is working His salvation quietly in the background. We may not see it because we get overwhelmed by the difficulties in life. We may not hear it because there's so much cultural noise. But God is working His salvation for those who choose to honor Him. And let me just close with this quick illustration from World War II. It was one of the uh, um, B-17 B-17 bombers doing a a raid over Nazi Germany, uh, and the gas tank got hit. And you can imagine what all the crew was expecting, but no explosion took place. When the B-17 returned, the pilot went to the crew chief and said, go down, I want to get that shell, I want it as a souvenir, I want to wear it forever. And the crew chief came back and said, no, there's not one shell in the gas tank. There's 11 unexploded shells in the gas tank. So they sent them down to the, the munitions department to find out, to, to defuse them, and they found out that every one of these shells were empty, except one. There's a little note. They unscrolled it, and it said in Czech, 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 Czechoslovakian language, Czechs, this is all we can do for now. So somewhere in the Nazis' war effort, there were these prisoner Czechs. They couldn't blow up the munitions plant. They didn't assassinate Hitler. All they, Hitler, all they could do was not put explosive in some of the shells that they sent to the front. But it was enough to work salvation. 
And in the same way, for those who are honoring God with their lives, you may not see God's salvation. It might be just quiet in the background like Samuel's life or like these little shells without explosive charges. But God is working His salvation out to those who will honor Him. And I pray that's going to be the kind of people we are as a church, people who honor Him. And we get a chance to do that this morning by partaking of the Lord's Supper you see right before me here. What a great way to, to end this service. I just want to let you know, if you're visiting here at Christ Community Church for the first time, if you are a Christian and in good standing with a local church, you're welcome. We have an open table. You are welcome to come down and receive the elements as you're going to have people, we're going to have people standing here that are going to bless you. Uh, they're going to give you, you're going to take the bread and dip it into the cup, and they're going to pronounce a just great blessing over you. Uh, if you've got little kids and you're not, you're, they're not, you know, you're not sure of their salvation, just come on down and have the servers pray. They would love to pray for your kids and just experience communion together. And we do have, as you can see, a gluten-free line here. So if you are gluten-free, just come down the middle and let them know and they'll take care of you. Uh, let's pray. And if I can have the servers come on up, we'll end our service. Father, we just thank you that you honor those who honor you. And Father, we want to honor you, not just so we can get the benefits. We want to honor you because you are worthy of honor. Father, may our act together today of fellowship, may this time of the Lord's Supper be an expression of our honor to you. You were not obligated to come to the table and reconcile with humanity. You came because of your love. So, Father, it's with grateful hearts that we want to make the most of who you are in our lives. We pray this and thank you for it in your Son's name. Amen.